Hi folks, welcome to another installment of the O Group on the Wolves Nation podcast. Myself, World to Explorer Lawrence Holler, and my colleague, Bathful Guide Ben Main, here at Wolves Nation. Today, I'm joined by George, who's going to give us a really insightful uh, talk an introduction around his new book that has just come out following in his grandfather's footsteps and his military service. So, uh, hi, George. Hi, Ben. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. And uh, thank you for sparing the time to to come on and uh, speak to us today for this. So just for those who are joining us, give us a brief background to yourself and what led you to write the uh, book. Um. Yeah, well, I'm not a professional writer or historian. Um, I'm an academic, uh, a professor actually, but in uh, engineering, not in in history. Um, but um, what my background really is, um, I mean, I've got a mixed background. So I was actually born in the USA um, and um, um, came to England when I was about seven years old um, after my mother and father divorced. Um, and my mother's English, or as I found out, you know, or came to understand, half English, half Czech. So uh, I grew up in England um, in the sort of 80s, um, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, um, in, a, in a small coastal town, Lincolnshire, on the east coast of, 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 of um, England, which for me is kind of probably the most um, forgettable or un- unsung place in the country. It's, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. And again, um, there's perhaps reasons why we did end up there, but um, uh, which will come up, which will come out in the story. But um, yeah, so as I grew up, I, I, um, I, gradually got to know my um my grandfather who who you know because we, we when we came to england we came to live near him um and he was very obviously czech <laughs> not english um you know spoke with a, with a thick czech accent um and there were lots of kind of stories and you know um oh well you know he did stuff in the war but we don't talk about it um you know so there was always that and there was always this kind of little bit of a of an aura around him but but you know he was just my granddad you know he was a good granddad he you know we we he, um you know he taught us you know lots of things we played lots of you know did lots of as you would with a grandfather you know he had a very strong relationship but as as we got older i did start to wonder why is a why is a czech veteran in lincolnshire <laughs> you know why isn't he in czechoslovakia why are we here you know all those sorts of questions and you know it's difficult when you're not allowed to talk about things or you're encouraged not uh, not to because you know there were clearly was a, a story there that wasn't just important for him but was also um important for me in understanding where i came from and um and and and, and the sort of family history so you know I was, i'm a naturally curious person you know academic always looking for uh, you know to research things and understand things and gradually came to know more about his story i think in the early mid 80s and it's this is all some of this is all recounted in the book um I wasn't allowed to the film Operation Daybreak, which is a famous film about the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, um, was on. Um, I think it was probably the first time it was on TV in the sort of early 80s, and I wasn't allowed to watch it. But my brother somehow snuck up, snuck up and watched it and told me about it. And and it was about he told me the story, and it's a famous story about how um, Czech Czechoslovak parachutists were parachuted in, you know, trained by the SOE, were parachuted into um, Prague and managed to assassinate Heydrich. You know the sort of archetypal blonde haired uh, evil nazi <laughs> you know head of the um, ss or deputy head of the ss head of the gestapo architect of the final solution about as evil a person as you could imagine um and 
you know, I then found out a little bit more about the fact that my grandfather's cousin, who had actually been one of his closest friends and the, who he had actually travelled out of Czechoslovakia with at the start of the, or when Czechoslovakia was occupied by um, Nazi Germany in 39, he'd actually travelled with jo Joseph across Europe. Uh, again, this is all, all in the book. Um, so he was a very dear and close personal friend, and he was one of the seven men who died in the uh, church at the crypt of St. Cyril and Methodius um, at, in the aftermath of the Heydrich assassination. So he was a parachutist as well, parachuted in for a separate mission. So, so I came to understand that there was a big story here. Um, and I did somehow know, and you know, you don't know how you know, but my granddad had also been a parachutist. And so, you know, there's obvious question here is <laughs> what happened, you know? So um, it, it's hard to push through sort of family culture and ask those sorts of questions just blurt them out. And when I did, my granddad, you know, is a very, um, he had a very sort of dry sense of humour. He would shut them all down with a smile or a kind of, you know, shrug. Um, but as he got older in life, um, and I knew more, I started to research. I read a really good book, which I would recommend to any, anybody, um, uh, called The Killing of um, Obergruppenfuhrer, Reinhard Heydrich, or something like that, by Callum MacDonald, anyway. And it's, it's an excellent book, which takes you through the whole political situation and uh, very well researched and I read that book uh, and then all of a sudden I was actually able to and I think he as he got towards the end of his life he had a, you know a few heart attacks and strokes and he was you know gradually I think coming to terms with the fact that his life would soon be over I did sense that there might be an opportunity to dig a little deeper and find out a bit more um, and I had the knowledge to ask some intelligent questions so I did that and managed and I wrote down and scribbled down every little piece of information I could because somehow at the back of my mind, I knew that it was my duty, really, or destiny, if you like, to uncover the story. Um, and of course, as I did that, I realised and came to, you know, fully realise. And by the end of the end of the story, by the end of the book, that there was very good reasons why he didn't talk about any of this stuff, which were, um, you know, um, very very important geopolitical reasons and also reasons of his own personal safety and that of his his family yeah and that uh, that definitely comes across with the uh, the book with his journey though it wasn't just around those years being uh, in uh, the uk before then going back uh, across to europe his journey started uh, quite early on as you just alluded to with the political situation with the Sudetenland, uh, with German Nazi Germany looking to uh, swallow that up effectively. Uh, he, it's quite clear he saw things developing and that had an impact on him. If you can just tell us what happened to him and then his journey to how he got across to the UK, because it's quite a story in itself. It is, it is. So, um, I mean, he was... Uh, he was a good student by all regards, but he was brought up in that, that generation between the end of the First World War and the start of the Second World War were, I mean, Czechoslovakia was a new country. It was a country which was um, positioned right in the heart of Europe. So, you know, Czech, it had never been a country before. It had, it's a key strategic location for anybody who wants to be in the dominant position in Europe. So it had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It had been part of, um, you know, the, the Holy Roman Empire. You know, this was a new, uh, he was a Moravian. So he was from, you know, so Czechoslovakia being Bohemia, Moravia and Slovakia, basically. Uh, he was from the Moravia, which is the central um, portion of the country, a town called uh, Barnov near um, 
Uwerski Broad, I think, is the nearest town. Um, and so I think when, at the end of the First World War, when Thomas Masaryk was the first president and Edvard Benesch, who was his deputy, became the second president, um, brought the new country into being, they did it knowing that it was going to be a fight to maintain its, it as, for the long term. And so my granddad was of that first generation of Czechoslovaks. Uh, he was born in 1914. His cousin Josef was born, I think, 1918, 1919. So they grew up only knowing Czechoslovakia. And they were, you know, you could say indoctrinated or you could say uh, raised, you know, to be to be patriots uh, for their for their new country. So they were all um, part of the Sokol Gymnastics Club, which was the sort of nationalistic, actually quite anti-Catholic um, gymnastics society. Um, you know, so they were taught to be physically and mentally strong and to be really proud um, Slavs and Czechoslovaks. Um, he was a good student, um, although he did get, I believe, expelled from his school at one point when he was growing up for um, speaking out against the Catholic Church. Um, uh, spoke about the, um, you know, he spoke in favour of uh, Jan Hus, who was a, um, uh, a Protestant um, uh, martyr um, for Czechoslovakia. So he was, it was very clear that he was sort of um, really bought into Czechoslovakia's independence and sort of um, uh, mission statement if you like uh so he ended up uh, training in languages so he spoke um i think he spoke fluently five or six languages and had a working knowledge of a few more but particularly he spoke russian czech and german and so when he when um czechoslovakia was um overrun so obviously there was a munich agreement in 38 um where actually as well as um you know, so Czechoslovakia was significantly, I say, mutilated, really, and all of its key defensive borders were taken over by the Nazis without a fight, which was obviously a huge blow to uh, the pride and will of this new young country. Um, but when they did then come in in 1939 and break the Munich Agreement, my grandfather was taken by the Nazis to a, a labour camp in Kiel in um, northern Germany. There he was... Um, to, it was to build a naval barracks. Um, but I suspect one of the reasons why he was there was because he could speak German and Czech. And so as well as, you know, having to do the, the physical labor, he would have been there as a sort of liaison as well. It would have been helpful to have the, the two languages. But he was there. He describes that. There's a little bit about this in the book, how he was. they were given, you know, starvation rations in effect. And he was beaten regularly, made to do pointless tasks, um, uh, including one thing he said was he was beaten in the, on the head with an iron bar was one of his explanations you know one of his descriptions of the uh, sort of ordeal so it wasn't it wasn't much fun let's put it that way um and he said as as bad as it was for him um it was much worse for the jewish um inmates at that even at that time in 38 uh, 39 uh he said who were literally on the brink of starvation um uh, but in the end, it was Christmas Eve, 1939. He um, he was um, he decided to leave. So by this time, um, uh, Edvard Benesch uh, had gone back to England. Um, so in, after Munich, ben Edvard Benesch, the president, had gone into America in exile. But then, when the Germans broke the Munich Agreement, uh, Benesch came back and um, to England to basically reclaim his authority and reclaim the country. Um, and actually, at the same time as that, the head of intelligence in Czechoslovakia, Franciszek Morovets, managed to get a plane with 10 of his best agents in his key files uh, in, in, over, back over to England as well. So they had the kernel of what would become the Czechoslovak resistance movement. And they started to make calls out for um, 
able-bodied Czechoslovaks to um, leave their country and uh, and go to, to to join the French army or to join their exiled army with the French to fight in the battle for France. So my grandfather, with a couple of um, with the support of a couple of um, Jewish inmates, uh, labourers, uh, escaped from um, from Kiel. Uh, I did actually say, "How did you escape?" And he, he <laughs> I remember his response was, um, "I don't think this is in the book." But he said, um, "He said, well, we just walked out." He said. <laughs> There was nobody was guarding it. There was nowhere to go. Nobody would be stupid enough to leave, <laughs> you know. So they just left, uh, and somehow, I think over, you know, before the before the end of 1939, they managed to somehow. And I, I can only think this is with. I think he said this was with the support of the the Jewish uh, uh, his companions, Jewish companions, because they were able to actually leverage contacts within Germany to find their way through Germany. Uh, God knows how they did that, but they ended then ended up in. Um, in Barnov, he ended up back in Barnov for Christmas. Um, and uh, at that time, Edvard Benesch was making calls out on the radio to, as I say, for and and um, and Jan Masaryk, Thomas Masaryk's son and foreign minister, were making calls out for Czechoslovaks to join the army. So they decided. Um, I think it's, he said they had a, um, a a pack of sandwiches and a bottle of plum brandy and their coats. And they said, right, we're off um, to, to, join the arm, to join the army. But at this, by this time, Poland had fallen. So their only route to get to the French army was a convoluted one. They had to go through Slovakia, Hungary, uh, the Balkans, um, you know, Turkey, uh, Syria, Syria, I think, and finally to the Lebanon, where they linked up with a French foreign legion uh, outpost. Um, I should say he was traveling at this point with Josef Bublik, his cousin, because uh, when Heydrich was brought in to... Um, to really, um, you know, Hydric was brought in to, I think must have been about that time, sort of like late 39, to try and get the Czech, uh, Czechoslovak, or Czech, actually the Czech population uh, more subservient to the Nazi war effort. So he was, had a really, uh, you know, terrible regime. There were student protests and the uh, universities were closed down. And Josef Bublik, his cousin, was a law student. So he was back in Barnov when my grandfather came back for Christmas and the two of them set out on this journey. Uh, all of this is sort of, as I say, this is recounted in the book, and they um, eventually found their way to the um, to the Foreign Legion, and then, th with the support of the French, um, got their way across the Mediterranean to the base at Agd, Port uh, Sete, I think, in, in the south of France, where they were trained um, and linked up with their other exiles uh, to take play their part in the battle for for France. That was a long answer to a quick question, but I'm uh, no. you know, part of the way through the through the through the through the book there. No, no, and uh, it, it's good points that you make. It's it's you could say quite an epic journey just to get from Kiel, uh, then all the way through to uh, then being able to link up with the uh, French Foreign Legion, and then going to France to then fight in the Battle of France itself. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the interesting thing for me is, as I gradually did this research, little anecdotes and stories that he told me, just stories that he thought were funny or things he wanted to share with me, how I could actually place them on the timeline and think, well, that must have happened. You know, I remember him telling me a story about how they actually saw uh, the Indian rope trick. You know, there's a famous, uh, you know, conjuring trick that you, that's much fabled and people talk about it and talk about how it can be done. This is a, it's a, it's a trick, it's a, it's a, um, 
well, it's explained in in the book, but the the Indian rope trick is, you know, but my grandfather wasn't one to spin yarns, but he genuinely witnessed the Indian rope trick and told me about it and said what a bizarre experience it was. And, you know, I thought, well, that must have happened somewhere in North Africa, mustn't it? You know, you can start to to drop the um, the, the anecdotes and things. And I, I did that deliberately because I thought it, it made that connection between what otherwise was just sort of history with a real personal uh, understanding of his experience and also, you know, in doing that, um, my relationship with him. And uh, you also had, not just as a, a reminder for your grandfather for the time he spent with his uh, his friends, uh, for you to look over was the photo album that helped you piece this together as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly the same thing. When I, what I realised was my, a lot of, you know, my grandfather never spoke about these things. So, but actually when I looked in his photo album, everything was arranged in meticulous order um, and including in some cases stock photos that, you know, he'd used to flesh out the story. So I did feel as if almost he was, he wanted to tell his story somewhere. And so he told his story, I think, in that photo album. Now, unless you had the knowledge, you wouldn't know what it was. But when I started to look into it, there was, you know, there's, there's um, many photographs of, of parachutists who are now, famous in Czechoslovakia, you know, um, you know, but, but again, I didn't know any of this, you know, some, some of the, some of the, you know, the key players in, in the, in the, the really famous story about Anthropoid and others, they're all of his closest friends. Uh, and you can see them, they're all laid out chronologically in the, in, in, in the album. So it was, that was another real help. You know, I had the, I had the bits of information that, um, that he, he provided with me, the anecdotes I could piece together, uh, the photo album, um, I did manage to speak to a few of his colleagues and friends before they passed away. Um, but ultimately, what I needed to understand was the whole political context to throw all this into focus. Uh, and actually, the good thing about needing to understand that and then putting it in the book is I think it does give a whole other layer of complexity and understanding to things like the story of the Hydric assassination, which is in danger of becoming very cliched Hollywood sort of daring do story of you know, why, it was the question for me, why would, you know, young men barely out of their teens be doing such, you know, crazy things? <laughs> there has to be a why. And if, you don't, and, and if you don't understand the why, you don't really understand the story. And the why ultimately was Czechoslovakia. You know, they, 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 they were fighting a principal cause to create a genuinely liberal, democratic, socialist country in the heart of Europe. That was why they'd be doing it. They believed in the cause. They, 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 they didn't want to be anybody's subjects. They wanted to be independent, free citizens. And, and that's why many of them laid down their lives at a very young age, <laughs> in very painful circumstances. Yeah, and I, I'm sure we'll come back to uh, a point on that that I wanted to raise uh, in a second. But with the Battle of France, they, they fight with the French Foreign Legion. They're falling back due to the uh, the blitzkrieg of the uh, the Nazis at that time through France. They they fall all the way back to where they initially trained. Was that correct? And then they have to then go on another journey to get back to the uh, the UK. Yeah. So um, I mean, they were brought up to problem was timing really and I mean so so don't forget after Munich I think the the Czechs had something like 25 or 26 divisions ready to fight the Germans 
And they had, um, you know, because they had the Skoda works and they were, you know, Bohemia was a bit of an engineering powerhouse in that, in that period, you know. So they, they had a strong army, uh, not, an, not an army that was strong enough to fight um, Nazi Germany on its own, but an army that with the support of the French and, you know, the British and the Russians um, would have played a major part in clipping Hitler's wings at a, and remember Hitler took all that, um, um, you know, he got all that for free which significantly fought the balance of the war. So they, they wanted to fight um, and they were motivated. And they, again, they believed in what they were doing. I think they, by the time they got to France, um, I think they were very disillusioned with the way things had gone. And uh, I'll be honest, my grandfather was never very complimentary about, um, about his experiences of France. <laughs> um, you know, they, were, they, were, they turned up, almost felt as if they were surplus to requirements. Um, they were given, um, you know, First World War uniforms and rifles sometimes to fight with. But they fought, as I understand it, they fought bloody well. Um, you know, they were holding the line when morale had already collapsed elsewhere. But as you say, that meant that the forces were retreating around them. Uh, and they almost were fighting to a lost, they couldn't win a lost cause on their own. So, and the politic, the very difficult situation for them then was, as far as Germany was concerned, um, they were a um, part of the Third Reich. So they were traitors and they would all have been, um, you know, as far as Nazi Germany was concerned, capital punishment was the only, only um, solution for them. So, they, so when France collapsed on the, on the verge of signing the armistice, um, they were retreating for their lives across France. Uh, I mean, my grandfather said he, they marched, I can't remember for how many days, but he said he actually literally marched asleep so he was dead asleep, but his body just carried on um, marching. And they marched all the way from, from Paris, where they'd gone, as you say, right back to the, to the south of France. Um, the armistice signing was a, a dangerous point for them. Um, I think they got their weapons. They, the French took their weapons from them. Um, there was a bit of a, of a, of a, a brouhaha, let's say. Um, but they managed to get, the bulk of them managed to get on boats um, to go across to England, uh, where they... Um, you know, a couple of bits in the book again here where um, it was actually at the time when Churchill had sent the Navy to, um, to to get the French Navy, stop it from falling into German hands. And so they actually saw that task force. So they were these demoralized men, you know, absolutely, you know, blistered and battered and starving and with no country to call their own uh, from a landlocked country, remember, and they're all lying across the boat and then they see the, you know, the task force. You know the, that that you know at Gibraltar they saw the uh, that that fleet setting out and they kind of that's part of what rekindled their spirits I think the recognition that Great Britain was still in in the war and was a force to be reckoned with and so, so they and then they and then they I think they were shadowed by a U boat which which didn't attack them because they had a um, uh, it was under an Egyptian flag I believe and then they managed to find their way to uh, to Liverpool to Chomley uh, well to, to initially to Liverpool and then into to Cheshire where they were put in a intended accommodation initially in, in Chomley Castle. And again, their morale, they were really remarkable still. I remember going to the 60th anniversary celebrations where they talked about how the British reception um, really kind of reinvigorated them at this really low point in time. You know, it, it's funny, I saw that film, the film Dunkirk, where they all where they were handing the, the jam sandwiches and the cups of tea. And he said that, and that was exactly how he explained it, you know, the people cheering them um, as they came in. 
And uh, the, the point that I wanted to go back to, and it links in with the political side, is how these, these men must have felt knowing that the Munich Agreement, did they feel betrayed by the British, although there wasn't a treaty by the British? Uh, no, the British were contingent on the French position, wasn't it? So, yeah, they felt, I think they felt a, be- a, 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 they felt a t- terrible betrayal because they wanted to fight and they thought that that was the right thing to do, which, which I think... Hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But certainly the war would have played out very differently if they'd stood behind Czechoslovakia. Um, I mean, of course, the thing was that what they, what they didn't want at any point was a peace being signed with Nazi Germany because that would have meant that Czechoslovakia would have ceased to exist. Yeah. Um, but I think the British, my take on it, and from understanding my grandfather, was that Britain staying in the war stopped all that. And therefore, I feel Brit- Britain's stance and you know determination to fight through... So uh, I think they, they, I think they drew real strength from that, and I think Britain did a lot to redeem itself in the eyes of the Czechs, at least as far as I understand it, uh, 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 Czechoslovaks at that point, and subsequently. And uh, yes, with the British and the Commonwealth effectively alone at that point, uh, it gave the platform for these uh, Czech men to then train rearm and then be in a position to strike out when needed as well uh so with your grandfather now in the in the uk in england what uh, sort of training did he go through where was he what did he undertake so he was as i say the men originally went to tented village in um the northwest of england um morale was very low and just a little bit about what happened there at the time um there was a a lot of the Czechoslovak soldiers were veterans of the um, Spanish Civil War, and at this time the um, the uh, um, Russians and the Germans were in a mutual non-aggression pact. So there was a strong um, effort from communist members of the Czech army in exile to. Um, uh, refuse to follow orders and to actually, um, you know, to, 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 to deny Beneš's authority. So there was initially quite, a, there was a bit of a political storm there um, while um, uh, the, 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 you know, a battle, if you like, for the exile army. Um, and eventually, I think uh, the, the ringleaders um, on the communist side were, were, were I think, in, put into safe occupation uh, and, and, the, and the bulk of the um, army um, moved on uh, they went they were they were then put into barracks at um morton paddocks leamington spa which i believe you know well um and um so they, there they were being trained and of course the thing was that they were from day one the idea was they would be the liberating army to go into czechoslovakia when the nazis crumbled now nobody knew of course you know that the war was going to take that long as long as it did there was a thought that hitler might collapse at any time right the way through the whole of the second world war as i understand it so they were ready in themselves to be the, the the force to go in but they were under massive pressure to do something for the war effort um particularly at this point you know it's before america was in involved in the war before russia had changed sides initially um so they needed to do something they had a, str- a strong intelligence capability because they'd managed to get that out of the country. And they also had a really strong um, uh, contact within the German military intelligence, a military agent called uh, A54. So from the position of um, Benesch and his uh, head of intelligence, uh, Franciszek Morawiec, 
the initial focus was on strengthening their intelligence. So if they were going to, uh, you know, if there was going to be an uprising in Czechoslovakia of the local population, they needed to be in control of it. And for that, they needed contact, uh, communication contact with the um, local resistance. And also at this time, um, Churchill kicked off the special operations executive with its mission to set Europe ablaze. So they wanted to, um, uh, so there was pressure also to, if they could drop agents and conduct sabotage and other missions, it would show that Czechoslovakia was not part of Nazis, the Nazi, uh, was not part of the Nazi axis, if you like, and was actually uh, deserving of its independence. So there was that, but there was also strengthening the contact with the local resistance to ready uh, the country for the uprising and the eventual retaking of Czechoslovakia. So the most important thing they needed to do on day one was establish really robust communications. Now, um, and they did that with, they were allowed to do that under their own authority. So they weren't actually, we talk about Czech SOE agents. There were no Czech SOE agents. They were Czech agents who made use of SOE training facilities. They did not do it. They, they did it under, and, and part of the reason they were able to negotiate that degree of independence was because of the quality of intelligence that they had at that time through A54. Um, and, and so they, they and, and they are actually also, which be, it became a sticking point towards the end of the war as loyalty started to evolve, but they actually managed to negotiate their own independent codes for communication. So they, the British did not see all of their communications and all of their messages. They were able to cherry pick what they showed the British, which was a hugely, um, but that was all they had. They had no country. They had, uh, you know, a, a small army that was forming. But what they had was intelligence and, and knowledge. And the reason why I'm majoring on this is because that's what put my grandfather kind of front and center of the story. He'd been a linguist in France. He trained as a signaler. And so he was one of the most capable, if not the most capable signaler that they had. And so when in 1941, uh, Emil Stankmuller, who was um, Franciszek Moravec's deputy, came to Leamington looking for men to recruit for parachute training to work with the um, special operations training schools under Czech instruction. And I believe initially uh, he picked about seven or eight men and that included um, my grandfather. It included a colleague of his, a guy called uh, Miloslav Novak, uh, who I can't find any records of anywhere in, in any, any files, but that, you know, he was my granddad's um, and, and another exile to England, which is very interesting. So I wasn't able to stay in Czechoslovakia at the end of the war. So he was another key player. Um, uh, Adolf Apalka, who led Operation Outdistance um, and was um, involved in the Hydric assassination. And Josef Gabčík, who was one of the Hydric assassins. So there was certainly those four men, uh, five men, four men, uh, but, but no more. There were about eight men, I think, initially recruited. And my grandfather in his photo album actually had his invite to dinner with um, uh, Edvard Benesch as a kind of, you know, that was the kind of uh, initiation, I guess, into this sort of inner in a sanctum um, and the initial right from day one my grandfather told me that there was they knew they were being recruited for an assassination that was that was what was said but they didn't know who uh, but as my grandfather said we, you know we all knew who Moravec was and we knew it was something big but again right from day one compartmentalization of information nobody was given more information than they absolutely needed but what happened was um, very early on with the absolute critical importance of communications, they realized that my grandfather was too valuable an agent to send into the field because they knew that um, that's, that was a very dangerous thing to do and his skills were rare. So he was actually kept behind to train uh, the radio operators for the succession of missions that came. So 
he trained um, uh, the famous parachutist William Garrick, who was one of the traitors as we get to the <laughs> hijack assassination. He trained the radio operators, all the radio operators for those groups. So he would have trained Gabchik and Kubish in radio operation. He would have trained, he did train uh, the radio operator, uh, Jimmy Potacek for the communications operation. Uh, you know, so he, he trained, he basically was, that was his role in the in initial phase of the war. But then in the second wave of recruits or third wave of recruits, very early on again, Joseph, his cousin, um, was brought in. He wasn't a communication specialist. He was a infantry infantryman, and he was actually then selected for one of the early missions um, at the same time as the hijack assassination, which was Operation um, Bioscope. So they, the two men were very much in the inner sanctum of this intelligence world at this very critical phase of establishing um, Czechoslovak covert operations with the ultimate objective of using that to win back the country, basically, which at, the t at that time didn't e exist. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fascinating to hear this. And also you just alluded to uh, as well that uh, myself and Lawrence live close to Levington Spa. So we, we visit Jefferson Memorial Gardens, the memorial to the Czech men, the fountain recently restored there, an information board uh, giving uh detail on what took place many people walking through that park stopping and observing and remembering the the czech men that came to uh, our, a local town in warwickshire so their legacy uh, and memories obviously still live on locally uh, and just on that point with uh, your grandfather as well it's quite clear that he was highly trained his skills were very uh, desirable and they realised that, hence he trained so many of these men with the with the skill of using the radio for communication. I, ju I just wonder how he must have felt when these operations did begin to start, seeing these men going off. And in some ways you can view it as it really was a one-way ticket uh, that uh, the, there was two real outcomes, either by the end of the war, once they'd carried out their, their missions, their operations, if they'd survived, they would then come back to fight uh, to, to liberate their country. Or the other side to it is that many would be compromised and end up losing their lives. And uh, no doubt your grandfather was fully aware of that fact as well. Yeah. And again, this comes back to the silence, I think. Um, I mean, we did, he was the only, I mean, the closest I got to, so he always spoke with, and I guess we'll get on to a little bit about um, Joseph's story. Um, he was always very proud because that was a famous story. It was one of the few things that we did sort of talk a little bit about. And he was clearly very proud of his sacrifice and, you know, and, you know, it was clearly, um, very the whole thing's a very traumatic experience for him. Um, the other thing which he did talk about was um, uh, Garrick. So Garrick was one of the two traitors that uh, gave away the hiding place of the hydric assassination, the hydric assassins uh, leading to their death, ultimately. Um, he said that because Garrick was the radio operator and he trained Garrick and he said that he was completely unsuitable for you know, that sort of work and that he wrote a report recommending that he not be sent. Now. You know, that's what he said. I, I, you know, generally everything that he said checks out 100%. So I've no reason to believe it, but I can't help 
thinking that if that was the case, that would have helped him deal with some of the guilt of, you know, knowing that his cousin and his best friend had, you know, been sent to his to his death. But on the, on the flip side, they all believed in what they were doing, and they all knew the risks. Um, and if if they didn't do it, who was going to? So I, I think for them, it was it wasn't a question of. Um, you know, and I'm interpreting a lot because this, you know, is one of the areas that there's the most silence on. But, I, I, but what I've managed to gather from it is they did it because they believed in it and damn the consequences. It's much like when people talk about the assassination of Heydrich and they say, well, what about the repercussions? But it's like, well, yes, but what do you do with a bully? You go and whack them on the nose, don't you? <laughs> yeah. And you might, you, you, you know, you might then get piled in on. But, um, you know, the thing to do with a bully is to go and give them a whack on the nose. <laughs> And that's what they did. Now, the repercussions were horrific and the repercussions spilled out beyond their control. But um, either that or you just accept that the bully's going to win. Yeah, and the these men clearly highly trained going through commando school, rigorous, tough training. It would have taken uh, a certain person to do the task that they were going to be put forward uh, for. So if- I should say on that, Ben, as well, they, they, so they, they um, training schools, they made use of the SOE training facilities. So they went, you know, and I guess you're, I know you're very knowledgeable on all this, but they went, they made use of, of the, the various training schools for explosives, sabotage, hand-to-hand combat. Uh, you know, Joseph went up to the Highlands of Scotland and did all the sort of mountaineering and survival training. And you're right, they worked very highly trained. And from the reports I saw as well, commended by the SOE instructors for their commitment and effort so the yeah there were there were no flies on them they were you know they were well prepared uh, well committed to the cause but they were going into quite a difficult let's say difficult environment yeah a, a very hostile environment to say the least uh, to to go back into so just give us some background on some of those early missions uh, operations that they began to parachute into after the uh, training leading up to uh, Operation Anthropoid. Yeah, so, um, um, as I say, communication was absolutely vital. So so the only reason Czechoslovakia existed, the only reason it had managed to negotiate such a, a cushy position with the British, really, if there's one way of putting it, was, you know, u- uniquely having their own sovereignty, um, I think maybe the Poles had their own codes, but I don't think any of the other home uh, exiled uh, countries had that degree of autonomy. Um, the um, was because they had this communications network and they had this contact with A54. Now, very early on, after after the uh, they started working with SOE, um, the underground resistance, the famous Czech underground resistance, there's a whole other book in this at some point, and somebody's probably written it in Czech, but uh, the three kings. So there were three men uh, running the intelligence uh, resistance network within Prague, and they lost, uh, that was Balaban, Moravec, and Masin. Uh, and one of them was caught, and they lost their radio in Prague to the Gestapo, which meant that A54 was out of contact. Now, A54 had been providing information on, amongst other things, Operation Sea Lion, um, the, you know, the Nazi invasion of, of, of UK, of England. So, um, and so as well as, so the, so the British were desperate for them to, to, to build contact back with uh, their, their contacts, and they were desperate too, because if they couldn't even do that, then 
from the British perspective, what use were they? So uh, the first really significant mission was uh, called Silver A. Um, and that was, um, I'm trying to remember the, mem the members of that. It was Josef Valchik, who was a good friend of my grandfather's from a similar area of uh, Moravia. Um, I have to get my reference book out, actually, just to remind myself. Fine. There's a lot of names in Czech, and uh, yes. they, don't, they don't always fall off the tongue quite as much as you might expect. Yeah, so Silver A was um, led by Al Alfred Bartosz, uh, Sergeant Joseph Balchik, and Corporal Jerry Potacek, who was the radio operator. So my grandfather instructed him, and they were basically sent out, I think, with a three-pronged mission, which was um, get a radio up and working and make contact back with the UK. Uh, co make contact with the home resistance and then in particular make uh, contact with Vaslav Moravec who was the, um, the, 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 key, the key man from the Three Kings. Now the story basically is they, they, they landed and from the perspective of um, Bartosz the um, things were in their favour let's say that everything seemed to go to plan <laughs> and despite the difficult situations they managed to um, to achieve all three of their objectives fairly quickly. They managed to, uh, to get the, the radio network working. They set it up in a quarry just outside Prague. Um, um, Valchik managed to get a job at a restaurant where he was like able to move freely and communicate and pass messages. Uh, apparently, and my grandfather said this, he was a very charming sort of gregarious fella. So you can imagine him you know, being a real kind of intelligence asset for that sort of work. And, um, and Bartosz was at the center of it all. Um, uh, seems to be a very sort of sound, sober, all these men were only in their 20s, if they'd even even that old. Uh, I think Potashek might have even been a teenager, uh, but they were very accomplished and uh, competent people. So they managed to achieve all three. So from the UK, from the perspective of Benesh and Moravets, this intelligence work might have seemed like a bit of a doddle. <laughs> um, they all got promoted in the field, um, those the men of Silver A, and but Bartosz sent back a message, a very pointed message saying, don't send any more parachutists. Uh, you know, we, we've done this, but this it almost with a crazy degree of luck and please don't send any more parachutists because there's not scope capacity. You know, if you do, you'll blow the whole network. There is just too much, um, too much to do. Um, you know, it's just the environment is just completely uh, hostile and, and unsound. Now, um, as we'll go on to see, the Moravets um, and Benesh didn't heed that warning. Um, again their political judgment at the end of the day and hindsight is a wonderful thing but they didn't heed that message but so at the same time as silver a um um gabchik and uh josef gabchik a slovakian and jan kubish moravian were on the same flight out as silver a and were dropped in december of uh 41 i think december of 41 were dropped with their mission which was highly secretive they weren't allowed to talk to anybody about it but in effect, it was to assassinate the um, acting protector, um, Reinhard Heydrich. Uh, I think they also, if they weren't able to kill him, they were supposed to turn their attentions to Karl Hermann Frank, who was the Sudetenlander, who was the sort of, um, if you like, the instrument through which Heydrich enacted his policy. So he was more like the kind of manager <laughs> uh, and Heydrich was the director, if you like. So they were supposed to assassinate one or both of those, but clearly Heydrich was the target, was the one that they wanted to, um, to, to, to get. So those men were dropped in, 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 in December. Um, uh, Silver A was successful. And then the next significant mission, which was dropped in March of um, 1942, was Operation Outdistance. So 
the um the as i mentioned bohemia had a you know admirable engineering capability and the skoda works which we all know now we all know skoda um they um but that was producing tanks and armaments for for the for 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 the, for the third reich so that was clearly not a great um selling point for um for, for ben Esch and for uh, uh, you know, and for the Czech exiles in Britain to know that their their materials were being produced and being used against Allied forces. So um, their mission, uh, and this was led Lieutenant Adolf Apalka, Sergeant Carol Churder and Corporal Ivan Kolarik, their mission was to put homing beacons around the Skoda works to, uh, to um, negotiate or help navigate uh, RAF bombers to bomb the Skoda works. Now they didn't have so much luck. Um, everything kind of went a bit wrong. They, they lost their their homing beacons. They, uh, they they struggled to stay in communication with the British through the radio and through the um, uh, you know broadcasts. Um, and in effect, what happened was the mission failed. So they lit fires instead of homing beacons. The RAF plane tried one drop and then turned around and went home. They'd arranged with the local forces to. Um, to have ground sabotage because they thought they would have the cover of a bombing raid to do that. And of course that then left the people who'd done the ground sabotage a bit exposed. <laughs> um, so the, the whole thing was a massive blow to their morale. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, and also because at this point, uh, Kubish and Gabchik had been um, planning, long planning the assassination from Heydrich, they were keen to keep busy. They had been brought into the planning of outdistance. And what happened then was that that meant that gradually all the other parachutists worked out what Kubish and Gabchik's mission was. And so um, this caused a, a bit of a conference, if you like, and, and Bartosz from um, Silver A, who was the, the commanding officer on the ground, called a meeting and um, with the key local intelligence people and Gabchik of, of, of Anthropoid and said, we know what you're going to do and we don't think you should do it. It's going to just cause massive repercussions and destroy the whole of the intelligence network. It's counterproductive. And Gabchik said, well, it's my mission. I've got to do it. Um, so, um, and I believe there were communications back with the, with Lon the London checks to, to check whether the mission still should go ahead. And despite Bartosz's, um, you know, requests, they, they were denied and the mission was to go ahead. Now at this point, Bartosz, developed rheumatoid arthritis and was clearly coping with massive amounts of stress. And Adolf Apalka from out distance uh, took the lead as the sort of commanding officer, um, not informally. And so he said, well, if Kubish and Gabchik are gonna do this, we're gonna help them make sure it's a, su a success. So Apalka and Valchik um, were a Valchik of Silver A uh, were brought into the mission to um, help and helped with the conducting of the, the assassination. And while this uh, is all going on in the background, it's it's worth remembering that their day-to-day -day lives, where they were, they were constantly moving around between safe houses. They would have been constantly looking over their shoulders, worried with the Gestapo onto them. Uh, and then also still trying to plan for their uh, uh, individual operations as well. So a lot of things going on for these men on the ground. Yeah, a huge amount, huge expectation, huge pressure, quite demanding bosses, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, and But, 
yeah, I mean, uh, you know, un- unimaginable um, stress and pressure. And I can easily see how, you know, as the commanding officer, Bartosz was clearly um, conflicted in terms of trying to do what he was his duty, but also recognising the extreme risk that everything was under. Not And not just personal risk. The, as I say, the personal risk was kind of just a given. His concern was about whether or not the the, the ultimate mission would be compromised by this. Um, I, I mean, and I think you're right about the way... So March uh, 80... So March time... Um, was when out distance happened and then soon after that uh, april uh, there was a flurry of three more missions um, this was uh, bioscope uh, bivouac and silver um sorry steel a and again strong personal collection to my grandfather here because operation bioscope which was dropped in april was um led by uh, sergeant jan huby um, and the members, the other members were uh, uh, Sergeant Bohoslav Kuba and Josef Public, my grandfather's cousin. So they were dropped um, to sabotage power stations and railway bridges in Moravia. They were all Moravian natives. Um, and you're right, they were dropped in, despite Bartosz's warnings, these three groups were dropped into um, uh, Czechoslovakia at this time. Um, Bivouac was another sabotage mission. And then Steel A was a single man mission, radio mission. So it was basically sent in to help Silver A because Silver A was, equipment was, 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 was in danger of wearing out. The men were in danger of wearing out. So the radio operators and, you know, as we see, Bartosz was under huge stress. So was Potacek, the radio trainer. So they sent a, um, a young man, uh, Aldrich Dvorak. And I've got several, in fact, just about every photo I've got of this time of my grandfather is with, Aldrich Dvorak, he seems to have been a bit of his protege, um, 17, 18 years old, Slovakian. And he was sent there to bring a, a spare spare crystals, a spare radio set, and additional expertise to maintain Silver A. So again, his really crucial role. Uh, and a bit of an unsung hero, I think, you know, this young man going out on his own. Um, and as damning as my grandfather was of Garrick, the radio operator he trained who turned traitor he was full of praise for Aldrich Dvorak um, as, as exactly the sort of young man they would want to send on this mission so they were all dropped in April April 42 um, uh, Steel A um, he managed uh, so um, if you start with Bioscope Bioscope um, when they were dropped they had a lot of equipment and they realized that they were going to struggle to get that into uh, to Moravia without without help um so to, you know to the location that they needed so Josef Bublik and um and Kuba went to Mar- ahead to Moravia to plan the you know to, to contact their to, to secure the the location where they were going to do their missions and to make contact with their contacts and um uh, the leader um Hruby, uh, went to make contact with the other parachutists in Prague to get help with transporting the equipment across countries where they needed to use it. Now, when they, when Bublik and um, uh, Kuba went to Moravia, very close to their hometown. So it's ironic really for Joseph, he'd gone across in a very convoluted trip across Europe for his safety really. And for, you know, to get at, at where he could do some, some good. And now he was right back where he started. Um, so you're right. He must've thought, how the hell am I ever going to get out again? Um, but their, their contacts were no good. And so, um, you know, the content, all the addresses they had were compromised or people had been captured and t- sent to prison or even executed. So um, he was, um, 
they didn't know what to do. So they went back to Prague. And when they went back to Prague, they found out that actually in trying to retrieve his equipment, their leader, Hubi, had uh, been caught and killed by the Gestapo and all the equipment taken. So you, when you talk about the, the nightmare of surviving, um, they had the nightmare of surviving almost as Bartosz had predicted, but they had no mission and no leader. So they really were spare parts. <laughs> so they were being moved around from safe house to safe house uh, regularly. Um, you know, there was accounts of um, Joseph sleeping with his gun, you know, um, ready at all times, sick with worry, sick with nerves, um, just to stay alive. Because they had no, they now had no mission and no equipment and no real purpose. Um, and similarly with, I think with um, Steel A, um, Aldrich Dvorak needed help to get his equipment as well. And he actually couldn't, there was nobody. So he went to a family member, went to one of his uncles. They went back to the landing point to get his radio and saw that it was being staked out by the Gestapo. So he was unable to retrieve his equipment, but he did at least have skills uh, that could be, you, you know, the skills that he'd learned through his training that could be used to, to complement the resistance network. But you get into May 1942 and we've then got a large number of, you know, a relatively large number of these parachutists circling around safe houses in a network in Prague. Um, and then on the, I think it was the, the anniversary was just recently, wasn't it? Because on the 27th of May, I think, um, Gut, Gabchik and Kubish uh, finally conducted their assassination attempt with the support of Valchik and Apalka. Um, very famous story, um, you know, in films, Anthropoids, the film, as well as Operation Daybreak and several others, novelizations, dramatizations, graphic novels and comics I saw the other day, which I didn't seem to be the, quite the right medium, I didn't think. But anyway, I am a comic book fan, but, um, you know, fabled story, let's say, um, uh, on a hairpin bend in Prague on one of, on Heydrich's regular a journey through the, through the through the, the town and he refused to have more than one escort and sat in an open top car really again it's that thing about a bully you know he's kind of you know you wouldn't dare to uh, to attack me um and um as, as it as it slowed for the hairpin ben gabchik rose you know assembled his machine gun under his coat uh, threw it off stood in front of the car pulled the trigger but the trigger didn't was stuck uh, and then rather than driving on, which a sensible person should have done, Heydrich got the chauffeur to stop the car and rose with his revolver to shoot Gabchik. And at that point, Kubish flung the hand grenade, which uh, blew the back of the car open and um, threw shrapnel into uh, Heydrich. And so he collapsed, um, was sort of ultimately fatally wounded. And then the uh, Valchik, Apalka, Kubish and Gabchik scattered. But then, of course, all all hell broke loose. I mean, you know, literally almost <laughs> um, with mass reprisals, um, revenge, psychological warfare, house to house searches, um, you know, um, executions, uh, you know, they, they, they really were um, not happy. And this, because it had been an ass assassination on a, a senior Nazi, uh, this obviously reached right back to Hitler as a kind of uh, threat, you know, if, if they felt they needed to clamp down and show that that if anybody did anything like this, it was going to be met with the most, the, the harshest of reprisals. So that obviously made it very difficult for the parachutists in their safe houses in Prague <laughs> uh, to be safe. Um, and so they were, the, the, you know, there were, every house was combed. And there were some, you know, on the first night, there's a story, I think Apalka was in a, was hid in a cupboard behind a sofa as the troops inspected the house and he managed to not get, not get caught, you know, he was literally um, 
centimeters from the um, from the from the from the police the Gestapo. And so it got harder and harder for these men. Uh, you know, again, Joseph Bublik, um, Aldrich Dvorak, um, they were being sheltered by. I think the network was um, it was women of the Czechoslovak Red Cross were a key network that held this um, this together. Um, and so eventually, as the space shrunk and the reprisals got more and more, because the longer it went without them finding the um, the uh, assassins, the um, the the more pressure there was to do so. And so they they ended up um, well. Depressingly and unexpectedly, it was the Jewish population that suffered the most and in the largest numbers, I think 3,000 by one estimate were killed. Um, and then as a real psychological um, hit to the Czechoslovaks, they selected the, the town of Lidice and basically killed all of, all of its inhabitants and bulldozed it to the ground. And a similar fate for the town of uh, Lizaki, which was... Um, um, was actually linked to Sauvray. And so they had a kind of pretense for doing for, for doing that, committing that genocide. Actually, one of the final messages that came back from Sauvray's radio operator before he was caught and killed by the Gestapo, uh, Potrzeczek, was to the VRU, where my grandfather was now working on the uh, communication side, um, said, Lazaki is levelled, I'm the only one left. So that, that meant, then meant that the men were... Um, Eventually, they were given sanctuary at a church in uh, the famous, you know, Church of St. Cyril and Methodius, and seven men ended up there. Um, it was uh, the assassins, so Kubish, Gabchik, Apalka, Valchik. There was a man uh, called um, Svark who'd been sent in Operation Tin, actually, to his mission. His mission was another assassination, to assassinate the Minister of Propaganda, Emmanuel uh, Morovitz. Uh, and then... on. So as well as those five men, two, the two men from Bioscope, Josef Bublik and, um, and uh, Kuba. No, Ruby, Ruby, Ruby. Kuba was the leader. Sorry, I've got those two confused. So the seven men were there in the church crypts as all of this was happening. Um, I guess incre increasingly desperate, debating how to, whether, whether and how to hand themselves in um, and, you know, the space in which they could hide shrinking you know rapidly and uh, just as we uh, we cover that operation uh, similar to myself you've walked the streets of prague after reading uh, about what took place and for myself especially when you go around the streets where the safe houses are uh, i always feel there's there's a lingering darkness or something sinister uh, about that i mean prague is a beautiful wonderful city to visit uh, but when you you walk in the footsteps uh, of these men and what unfolded i just get this lingering uh, about the areas that you walk and what took place i think you're right though because it is such a beautiful city but any sort anything like that has got an underbelly hasn't it and for me i i think exactly like that of the little warrens and hideaways and nooks and crannies and uh, you know the space that they had to find themselves in there's lots of I, I, it feels like there's lots of places to hide <laughs> you know and and I, and that was where, how I imagined it so you know there's very little recorded about you know there is a little bit in um, the book uh, Target Hydric excellent book actually another another key piece of reading for anybody who wants to know more about this uh, which was written not long after the war there are a few little accounts of um, Josef uh, Bublik and Aldrich Dvorak 
you know, and, 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 and there is that real sense of them coming in and scoping out, where's the exits? You know, how do I get out of here? Where can I hide? If, if there's a knock at the door, where do I go? Uh, you know, again, his landlady finding his gun under his pillow, uh, you know, uh, that real sense of, um, of what it must have been like at the time. And I guess, you know, not very pleasant. And then the psychological torture being ramped up. And of course there were the men, in some regards, there was a network, at least they had each other the network that was together but then there were a few men who were out so um carol churder from out distance uh, you know that uh, he was out at his mother's farm desperately worried about her she was having a nervous breakdown at this point i believe he had a wife and children i'm not sure if they were there but again he was on his own sleeping in the barn uh and the pressure started to get to him and you know again in the kind of it's a really difficult one for me for this because uh, um my grandfather had no patience or tolerance for the people who turned because they'd been the instruments through which, um, but at the same time, you know, with a modern understanding of mental health and stress and other things, you can do that thought experiment of what would I have done? You know, you're getting villages wiped out, thousands killed, you want it over, you feel a sense of responsibility. And I think with Churder, he wrote, initially wrote a letter to the Gestapo from his mother's farm saying, um, the men that committed the assassination are Gabchik and Kubish. And the minute he did that, he thought, oh no, they're going to trace the letter back here, aren't they? <laughs> and so he went in and went to the Gestapo, um, identified a briefcase, I think, that had been left by Kubish. Uh, and also um, there was another mission which was sent in Operation Zinc with the radio operator Garrick, a young man again, similar to Aldrich Dvorak, but unfortunately not necessarily made of the same metal. Um, he very quickly after his mission was dropped, he realized that none of his contacts worked. Um, none of his contacts were valid. And there he went into the Gestapo and basically told them everything. Um, so, you know, that was the situation. So, so, so there were, I think there were a lot more, even though there weren't many parachutists, there were a lot more stories and a lot more men out there than, than, than is, is told in the, the kind of Hollywood anthropoid um and, and h8 i think some of it's an hhhh book but again it's a much broader story with a much more political context to understand to really um get to grips with the story so so these men did turn they gave information away uh, which ultimately led to um to, to, to the, the hiding place being uncovered on june the 18th i think the anniversary is coming up for that yeah, it's uh, the point that I was going to make now was that the, the net was closing in, the safe houses were falling, their friendly faces were being uh, taken prisoner uh, by the Gestapo. The, the net was closing in on the men in the church. Yeah, and so, um, and now we get, I mean, you know, anybody wants to know about this, as they can, can probably watch Anthropoid on Netflix, because that's, that's actually, I mean, for me, I thought that was, a very well done depiction of of the events um uh so on the morning of june the 18th i think so what happened was there was um and again it's it's unfortunate that the the um impact the female impact on this story is not writ large because always you know there's a strong uh you know these men needed support and um and um comfort and they got that in the um the, 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 this network around Prague was held together by um, the women of the Red Cross because um, they were able to move around, they were able to pass information, they were able to find accommodation and they were absolutely, none of this would have 
been possible without their their support and one woman in particular who's a sort of archetype for this is uh, Marie Moravets um, so she was at the centre of all of the network of safe houses uh, her son who was only a teenager was actually was involved actually went out and worked with Operation Out Distance and others so he was actually an active part of the resistance um, through the information that um, Garrick and Churda provided they were able to identify her, loca her location she um, was was caught her, her father and two sons were rounded up in the middle of the night by the Gestapo she committed suicide with a, a tablet that she'd been given and uh, they then took her son and tortured him so apparently that whether it's true or not that uh, there is evidence to support the fact that the Nazis were in the habit of beheading people and using their head and they uh, this apparently is a fate that befell the parachutists and, uh, apparently at the end but uh, apparently finally um, caved in when they showed him his mother's head floating in a jar of alcohol um, and he, he he gave up I think he did you know divulge something about a church you know again a young only a young lad um, after impossible ordeal um, so they sent I think 800 SS troops is, the, is what was is what's generally reported to the church crypt on the early morning of June the 18th uh, it was a hot night and apparently um, Kub, uh, Kubish Apalka and Joseph were in the choir loft of the church, um, sleeping up there and watching guard. Um, so the SS stormed the choir loft, but the battle went on for several hours. You know, they were well trained. They knew they knew how to handle a gun <laughs> and they'd been trained. So I guess the training mode flipped in. You know, they went into, into business mode. Um, as the short Prague woke up, the Gestapo and were getting more and more irate at the fact that they hadn't managed to, <laughs> to capture them. And again, um, knowing full well the propaganda victory that would have with capturing them alive and the information that they might be tortured out of them, they, um, after several hours, killed themselves with their last bullets. The other four men were in the crypt of the church um, trying to dig their way out. Uh, but ultimately, you know, again, after several more hours of fighting, they tried to flood the crypt. Um, they tried to put a ladder down to get down, but again, the, the men of it fought for as long as they could and then shot themselves in their heads with their last bullets. Garrick, as they, they dragged the bodies out onto the pavement and Garrick and Churda were brought to identify their comrades. Now, this is actually quite a fateful um, moment for my family because they were unable to identify Josef Bublik. Um, for whatever reason, either he wasn't well known to Churda or he didn't recognise him. Uh, the men had dyed their hair and grown moustaches and done various other things and they were dead. Uh, so maybe recognition, you know, maybe identification wasn't that um, easy. But um, those parachutists who were identified, their family members were rounded up and um, killed. Again, repeatedly, reportedly shown the heads of their um, family members. Um, uh, Again, I noted in the Gestapo files, there's a grudging respect and admiration. It's no, you know, I noted that they said there's grudging respect and admiration for the defiance. Now, whether that's, you know, that was from the Gestapo themselves, not from, not from any, any myth makers on the, on the, you know, that, that they, because again, they, you know, I guess it, it comes down to real principle and, you know, sacrifice and family, uh, you know, loyalty really. Um, and they did say particularly the women, uh, you know, again, they noted that it was that that um, utterly defiant um, to the last. Uh, but actually, luckily, although my gr my grandfather's brother was subsequently put in a a, a camp, 
labor camp prison um, because of my grandfather's activities and what the Nazis knew about them. Um, I think generally uh, the publics of Barnov um, managed to avoid the worst of the retribution. I, 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 if I'm wrong about that, I um, apologize, but I, certainly that's how I understand and have read it. I haven't had any contact with, with any of the family that side. Uh, I think Joseph Gabczyk's family were also spared a bit because he was a Slovakian and the Slovakia was a different regime to, um, to, 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 to uh, what is now the Czech Republic, Bohemia Moravia. So, um, yeah, so that's where this Joseph's, Joseph's story came to an end, really. Obviously, a very famous, famous story. I mean, I think one of the things with, which is, regardless of what, um, regardless of what people say about the... Um, validity or not of the assassination attempt and the, and whether or not the repercussions were worth it one thing it did show which may have been an un, unintended effect was it actually showed really what the nazis were all about you know they broke cover uh, and it helped people to get a first inkling of the real scale of horror and genocide at the heart of the regime which you know hadn't i don't think prior to lidici and other things hadn't really been fully understood so um, whether it was intended or not, actually forcing them into such a frenzy of um, violence uh, meant that they lost a bit of discipline and control around their, their, their messaging and that, that people were actually able to fully see, some people were able to see for the first time how um, evil the, the regime really was. Um, but again, yeah, not, not, a, not a pleasant <laughs> situation all around really. No. And, I, and I, I don't know what my um, grandfather, uh, so my grandfather was at this time working, as well as training agents, he was working at the headquarters of the um, communication centre in England. So he was, there was only about a dozen men and they were intimately, you know, as I understand it, almost telepathically connected to what was going on on the ground because they were, you know, in, they were tapping out Morse code um, on a daily basis, or, well, on a daily basis, 24 hour basis. Uh, they were the key link into all this. So, and I don't, again, there was a lot of compartmentalization of information, but um, one of the things I did get was um, an interview. I managed to, to get information from a guy uh, who was at Bletchley at the time and was regularly visiting the, um, the telecommunication center, which was in, nearby in Bedfordshire. Uh, he, he, he reported what the, about that time he went to the um, uh, station and he saw uh, you know, one of the men in floods of tears um, when he'd found out what had happened in and again it wasn't such a famous story at the time there was a little bit of information about it but it was in the press but you know that it was clearly something that um, would have impacted the men back home um, very deeply yeah and it comes to the point where that uh, sometimes you can view the these men and women that were involved in the second world war especially from the combat side that it's very methodical they were doing their job but to strip that back, they were ordinary people in extraordinary times. And these were their friends that they're trained with that sadly would lose their lives. And, and in some instances, we know family members as well. So it must have been hard for them, especially those back in the UK, your grandfather, to hear what uh, had unfolded. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, it took a long time for the information. Because I mean, remember, at the time, the hijack assassination wasn't officially sanctioned, you know, there was a nod and a wink from Churchill and from others, but, you know, political assassination at the end of the day is not not allowed under the Geneva Convention, is it? So, um, as far as I understand it, so nobody was shouting from the rooftops about all this sort of stuff. And, and actually, the 
uh, information that we know today took many many years uh, to come out so they would have been drip fed information and you know they may not even have known definitively who was dead and who wasn't even um but i just su i suspect he i suspect given his closeness to it all he was one of the first to to to, to know that his, his cousin hadn't made it but he had a job to continue to do and that that's what he did and prepared for his own operation in the future as well yeah well i mean i guess um his um you're, you're right. I mean, the war went, we're still at fairly relatively early stages of the war here. There was, you know, and I guess partly if, if maybe, and I'm, I'm interpreting here, but you know, if, if the sacrifice is to be worth anything, you've got to carry on and win the war. Um, and very much had a job to do. And, and he was still, you know, and again, communications remained as ever, if not more critical to Czechoslovakia's cause uh, from that point onwards. Um, uh, and he was, you know, right at the, um, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the at the hub of that. Thanks for listening. We hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the O Group on our social media channels. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at Worldwest Nation and also Instagram at Worldwest Nation HQ. Part two of this conversation will be out very shortly. 